0: We do all we can to help mind, body, and spirit. <laughs> well, welcome. My name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here, and man, I'm glad to see your smiling faces. It's, it's a beautiful day. Isn't it, Sasha? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Hey, listen, we are in Hebrews, so if you have a Bible, grab it. If you need a Bible, there's a bunch that look like this over there on that table, and they're free to you. Take it if you need it. Um, take it with you, take anything on that table that's made of paper, right? There's t-shirts and other things on there that are not free, but the Bibles are definitely free. And flip with me to Hebrews, which of course is in the New Testament, somewhere toward the back, I guess you could say. And we are picking up where we left off last week, which means today we are in chapter three. Oh, yeah, I, was like, I wasn't sure where... Where we are going to go with that, how confident you were going to be in, my, in the response. But yes, chapter 3, and we are going to cover the first three, no, I'm sorry, the first six verses. So Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible and you are relying on the screens, it will be up there. You, some of you have mobile devices where the scriptures are, but just get the Word of God in front of you somehow and follow along with me as I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are you ready? Yes. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. <clears throat> so we pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you again for today. We thank you for another day of life. We thank you for the way, God, that you love us and care for us. And we, we thank you, Lord, that we have this word written to us That we can look to for wisdom, for guidance, for encouragement, for direction, and even, Lord, for just a better understanding of who you are and what you desire of us as your followers. And so, this morning, God, would you help us to know, to see, to understand, to grasp, and then to apply these truths in our lives. And we need your help to do that. We are desperate for your help this morning, so I pray you meet us where we are here, and we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so something we do here at Pillar is we have a way of interacting with people. So if you have questions this morning, you can text them to the number on the screen. Um, Mike and I will come up at the end of service and field some of those questions. <clears throat> but anything you hear me say that you're like, "Wait, that doesn't sound right," or have a question about that, or if there's something in the passage where you're like, "Hey, well, you didn't talk about that?" We'll come up here and we will interact. Sound good? Sure. Okay. Six verses, not a lot, but if you were to look at that and say, okay, what's the overarching theme of those six verses? It would be that Jesus is greater than who? Moses. Okay, Jesus is greater than Moses. That's pretty clear, right? And again, this would have been a huge deal to the original audience, right? To these Jews, right? Massive, massive shift in their thinking. Maybe not so much for us today, but there's a lot here in this passage for us. We don't have to grasp that necessarily, although I'm going to work to hopefully get us in the ballpark of what they might have been feeling with <laughs> this truth about Jesus. But the letter is leading us somewhere. And there is what we call like a central theology that is weaving through the entire letter. And I read this week in a Christ centered exposition commentary this definition this kind of overview of the central theology right through the book Lee will you throw that up there central theology Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history and the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises prophecies and patterns so if there's a theme something that's kind of running through all of Hebrews it's this idea that Jesus is The climax, all of redemptive history, this is what it is. And that he is the fulfillment of everything that they had heard up to that point. So just keep that in mind as we continue through the letter. We're going to go all the way through. We'll take some breaks here and there. But just realize that this is the author. This is what he's trying to get at. We need to elevate Jesus above all else. And taking on someone like Moses, as I said, is a pretty big deal even us who are removed thousands of years know Moses, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. He did a lot of interesting things. I was trying to think of like a, a modern-day equivalent that we could use as a tool, I think, to help. And I couldn't think of any individual that we could all agree on, with like, yeah, that guy. Yeah, What happens if that guy gets replaced? I just couldn't think of anybody. We're, we live in a weird time. But I thought of... Uh, Something that may be helpful to understand the weight of what we're talking about here, and that's the the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, okay? Here's a document with its imperfections that has shaped our country and has supremely influenced who we are as a people. Yes? Yes. Okay. Now, imagine a leader comes in. He goes, all right, look— I know that this Constitution means a lot to you guys. It's played a big part in your history. But I've got something far better. You just need to trust me. We need to do away with the Constitution and just follow me where I'm going next. Right? This is something that would change everything about who we are as a nation. And I've, I would argue, probably very simply, <laughs> This is not something people would go along with quickly and easily, like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. Now, is that a perfect comparison? No. But I think it puts us, again, in the ballpark of knowing what these people were facing. Everything they were taught and knew, it was being replaced, or something was putting over top of it to say, this is even better. It's better than you could have ever imagined. Man, Let's look at some comparisons between these two. Maybe my example didn't do it justice, but hopefully it's as close as I can come up with. Comparisons between Moses and Jesus. And I think there's some parallels that you can read in what we just read. Some of them. The first one is that they were both faithful. Didn't our passage say that? Moses was faithful, Jesus was faithful. That's significant. That's an important detail we need to put up. Uh, they were both prophets. Now it doesn't necessarily say that Jesus was a prophet in there, but we know that they were both prophets and that they both represented God to the people. They were both used by God the Father in very pivotal times in history. Would you agree with that? Moses, Jesus used at very important times. So Moses was chosen, as we know, to lead God's people out of slavery in In Egypt, right, they were in slavery in Egypt. Moses was chosen to lead them out. And he was celebrated for that for generations. Made a big deal out of him. Uh, Moses also received the law from God, to which he delivered to his people. Again, a massive role in the history of God's people. But is the writer telling us to consider Moses or to consider Jesus? Jesus? He's telling us and them to consider Jesus, Because there are some similarities, and I wanted to draw those out. But what we have here in Jesus is a complete and conclusive nature to his work that stands out. Think about it. Moses spoke about the things to come, and Jesus brought fulfillment to those things. Moses brought the people out of temporary slavery. Jesus brought people out of eternal slavery. Moses delivered the law that was temporary, and it was inadequate. Jesus brought and delivered a law that would bring reconciliation and salvation. So Moses helped to pave the way for Jesus. His life actually displayed the superiority of Jesus. His life actually pointed the way to Jesus. And, as we said already, he was faithful. Like, I don't want to downplay what Moses did and who he was. Super important figure. says he was a servant in the house and played his part well. He faithfully discharged his service in the household of God by pointing to the one who was greater than himself. That's a big deal. So for the original audience, what he's saying is they should not fall back into elevating Moses, even though they were familiar and very comfortable with him and his traditions. Rather, they should seek to be like him in his faithfulness to his calling. God called him to do all of these things, and he was faithful to it. So the author is saying, you, listen, be faithful to your heavenly calling. All that to say, the original audience, they were called to consider Jesus and move beyond history and customs and traditions that rightly elevated Moses for centuries. He said, let's move beyond that. Let's consider Jesus and move beyond those things. We, likewise, today are cons- are called to consider Jesus as well. Right? We don't have a lot of the spiritual challenges that the Jews had to overcome, but we have other challenges, lots of distractions, lots of things trying to keep our eyes off of who God really is. And so these short couple of verses are asking us to do something quite significant. At first reading, it's just kind of like, what are you going to talk about for... 30 minutes over these six verses. <clears throat> well, let's look at how the chapter started. What was the very first word? Therefore. when well, We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Essentially, he's setting up to say, everything that I just talked about is going to be applied now in your life. Therefore. Therefore what? Well, in light of chapter 2, and if you're with us, you know that we talked about the salvation that Jesus provides because he tasted death for us, because of what he accomplished on the cross, because he deserves our full attention and consideration. There's no quick glance, like a little drive-by, run-through experience with Jesus. That's not the kind of consideration we're talking about. The writer's asking us to give true thought and consideration to Jesus Christ. He's the lens through which we view the world. And he actually should serve to recalibrate our worldview as we walk through this place that has a lot of brokenness and challenges the world can start to seep in and so we need to recalibrate our biblical worldview through considering who Jesus is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider Jesus. Are you ready? Ready, Alright, let's do it. The word consider that's used here is not superficial. It's not hurried. Nothing like that. There's a sort of meditative, contemplative nature to the the action. It's serious contemplation as to the nature of who Jesus is and what he's done. This is what we're being asked to do. And do you think the writer's asking us to consider it just because Jesus is a nice guy and he's a good teacher? There is a very important reason in this text why the author is telling us to consider Jesus. And it's my thesis statement for the the message today. I I wrote it on the screen. We must accurately consider Jesus in order to hold fast our confidence in him. We're not just considering Jesus to bolster our faith or to get to know him a little bit more or to apply the truths. We need to accurately and fully consider Jesus in order to hold fast our confidence in him. So look down at those six verses. There are a couple of titles and words that are used to describe Jesus. Name some of them. What? Worthy. worthy. Yeah. What? High priest. high priest. Thank you. Apostle. Apostle. That's not a trick question. I know sometimes I ask trick questions. This is not a trick question. Apostle, high priest. Worthy, faithful. How many times is faithful in there? Quite a few times there, right? But describing Jesus, it's used twice. Now, this is a small representation of Jesus, but I think it's significant, especially in, in light of everything that we discussed last week. And I'm not going to re preach that message, only to say that Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest who redeemed all of mankind. Now, that's a pretty huge statement, <laughs> but there's a lot of significance to what we talked about last week. And it came through his suffering on the cross. It came through him taking our rightly deserved punishment for our sin. And it came through his defeating over Satan and death by overcoming the grave. And you're welcome to go back and listen to last week's message. And maybe this week will mean a little bit more. Because these are the kinds of things that we're being asked to consider. But let us consider these words that we just identified in these first couple of verses. The first one in order is apostle. Okay? Anyone know what the word means on a very broad scale? One who is sent. Thank you, sir. Yeah, one who is sent. A sent one. Jesus was sent. Was he not? Sent by God the Father to earth to accomplish something very specific. Everything that I just stated and everything that we talked about last week So what he's asking us to do is consider, as a sent one, what he did. What did he accomplish? We need to rehearse those truths again and again and again. Sent one, apostle. The next one is high priest. Again, we talked about this, but I I do want to just examine it a little bit closely. Essentially, the writer elevates Jesus... Above the law, and now above Moses, by describing his priestly accomplishments. So no longer is it required for uh, an earthly, flawed priest to offer a a temporary sacrifice on behalf of God's people. Why? Because the true high priest, who is Jesus, he offered himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice. The high priest. We must deeply consider his sacrifice, what he actually did in that moment of salvation. We used a fancy word, well, the Bible used a fancy word last week. We talked about that little phrase. Remember, remember, remember what it was? Substitutionary. Substitutionary atonement. You're like, huh? What? If you weren't here, go back and listen to it. Substitutionary atonement. That's That's what we're talking about here. That's. The nature of him as a high priest, we must deeply consider that work. And then we have what I'll call the faithful sandwich. We've got faithful in verse 2. We've got him described as faithful in verse 6. And then in between that, the, the meat of the sandwich, he's described as worthy of glory. And he says glory, more glory, in fact, than who? More glory than Moses. So you see that in verse 3? Okay. Pause on the glory part. How was he faithful? Look at verse 3. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Who appointed Jesus? God the Father. And was Jesus faithful to what he was appointed to? Yeah. Faithful to death, even death on a cross. We read about that in the New Testament over and over again. He was faithful to... To his Father and to his calling. Consider the faithful nature in which you must also be faithful to your heavenly calling. We have the perfect example in Christ. Well, he was also faithful in verse 6, wasn't he? He He's faithful over God's house as a son. Who is God's house? We are. His people. Jesus was and is faithful To the people of God. Christy quoted the verse that I was going to use right now. It's Lamentations 3:22 and 23. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Church, God is faithful. Period. Period. God is faithful. Have you experienced His faithfulness? Have you benefited from his faithfulness? Consider then his faithfulness to you. And allow those truths and those experiences to wash over you, to motivate you to keep going. And as you keep going, we're reminded in this passage that Jesus is worthy of glory. Jesus is worthy of glory, more glory than moses now i don't know about you but this concept of bringing glory to god has over the years kind of been a struggle for me i'm like i'm not sure exactly i understand like how to do this or what does this mean in fact and when you look up the word glory online you're going to be bombarded with like a long list of definitions like it can mean this and this and this and this and this. like you're not helping me i just want to know what it means to bring glory to god so how do we bring glory to something? Just, you don't have to answer that a but think about it in your mind right now. How do we bring glory to something? Not necessarily God, but God is included in that. I think the most obvious way to bring glory to something is to make a big deal about it. Like, put a, a spotlight on that thing. There are going to be a lot of people this afternoon glorifying football teams. Yes? yes sir. Absolutely there are. They're going to celebrate them. They're going to lift them up. They're even going to work hard to convince you to feel the way they feel about that team. Their attitudes, their feelings, their emotions, their words are all going to be governed by this football team. And they will have no difficulty doing this. It will come naturally to them. Now I'm not trying to knock football fans in any way. Easy. (laughs) Lee wanted to do that. I, I didn't want to put that up there. I don't even know who's playing in the game today. but Okay, it's not to knock football fans in any way. I use this, though, as an example to draw attention to a very key aspect of bringing glory to something. There are things in this world that garner our full attention and satisfaction other than God. Aren't there? Aren't there things in this world that garner Get our full attention and satisfaction Yes. other than God. Yes, absolutely. Now, don't hear me say that these things are inherently bad. Because these things aren't inherently bad. Don't hear me say that you shouldn't be devastated by the 49ers lost two weeks ago. You should be. You should be devastated by that. However, here's the truth in all of this. Our ultimate satisfaction our ultimate satisfaction in this life as believers must come from God. Amen. John Piper famously says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so our goal is to live our lives in such a way that is to display the supreme worth and beauty and glory of God. So how do we do this? You're still like, okay, I get it, but like how how do we live this out? Cuz there are, as we've already agreed, a ton of things that are distracting our minds and our attention off of God and onto them. Yet we're still called to be satisfied in God. And thankfully, This isn't just unique to us. 2,000 years ago, people were still struggling with the same thing, and so the Apostle Paul helps us out, and he gives us some clues. Let's look at Philippians 4, 11 through 12. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul has told us that now he knows how to basically glorify God in every situation, be content, be satisfied, right? So we have all of our answers now, right? Because Paul told us. Well, did he actually give us the answer? I mean, he just said, I found the answer. He didn't actually tell us what it is, did he? That's not your question. He did not tell us in these verses right in the, right there. No. He just said, I have found the answer. Okay, Paul, what's the answer? Like, we need to understand this. So let's go back a few verses to chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 for Philippians. He says, but whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. They're like, okay, is that the answer? (laughs) Let's unpack this a little bit more. Um, I read this about this particular passage this week. It says, the fact that good things are counted as loss or as rubbish does not mean they can't be enjoyed. We already discussed that. But it does mean that the moment they compete with the superior beauty and worth and glory and satisfaction of Christ, they become an enemy. They become rubbish. But Paul has learned the secret. If Christ is more precious than anything, then both the loss and the presence, the gain of good things, is an occasion for treasuring Christ. In other words, let me drive it home. The secret is not discounting or diminishing the goodness of God's gift. The secret is in knowing Christ so well and loving him so deeply and finding him so satisfying that good things can be received from his hand as Christ-exalting gifts and good things can be torn from our hands as Christ-exalting discipline. Do you see what he's getting at? It's not the things, it's not the experiences, it's not the circumstances, It's our understanding of who God is. You have to truly know who Jesus is in order to follow his example in our faithfulness and in our finding our ultimate satisfaction in him. And this only happens when we consider Jesus. That's why we're talking about this from this passage. We can only know somebody or something when we really spend time with them. All of us have casual friends who we interact with occasionally. We don't really know them. And then we have friends that we can like finish each other's sandwiches. And then we have yeah, that was, that was, I was gonna say. And then we have spouses, right? Some of us have been married for for a long time and there's A deeper level of connection and intimacy. You know each other, like, deeply. That takes time. It takes effort. It takes studying the other person, knowing what makes them tick, knowing what makes them happy. Have you spent this time in this manner considering Jesus? Because that's the only way we're truly going to know Him, and it's the only way that we're going to be satisfied in Him above all else. Because when difficulties come, and they will come, and when challenges and struggles are at our door, we can either keep our eyes on those, or we can keep our eyes on Jesus. We can let those things define our satisfaction, or we can let the truth that God says He's faithful and His mercies never end, and that he will see us through to the end, and let that be our source of satisfaction. When we consider Jesus, this happens. Then and only then are we able to give glory to God in all circumstances. Then and only then can we hold fast to our confidence in him. Remember, I told you that was the kind of the theme going on here? So holding fast that's a topic that's going to come up again and again in this letter, because it is written to Christians who are suffering, and Paul, or the writer is telling them, look, hold fast, be steadfast, persevere through, hold fast to Christ, and so I'm not going to dig deep into this idea that's being established here, but I do want to, so I don't get any questions about verse 6, or like you skipped over this big part, right? In verse 6, there's this if word. Can you put up verse 6 real quick? But Christ is faithful over God's house of the son, right? And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That seems conditional, right? We're his, we're his people if we do this. Now I'll tell tell you right now, this is not salvation-based in terms of performance. Like, you are only saved if you do these things. We know the Bible teaches that is not true. It is not based on our work, but his work alone. What is being established here is that those who have trusted in the Lord prove their profession of faith by their steadfastness and their confidence and their joyful hope. That's what this is. It's a demonstration of the fact that you are his through your steadfast nature of in the confidence that you have and the boasting that you have in Christ. So don't worry about that if statement in the middle, because we're going to we're going to go into that. In fact, if you peek ahead and look at verse or chapter six, you're going to have some really huge questions, probably, because Hebrews chapter six has one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. And so we're just going to skip it. really hard really difficult to work through actually Mike and I are trying to figure out how we're going to do it but we think we're going to come up here one after the other and present two different sides we'll see how it goes don't read ahead no I'm just kidding (laughs) read ahead all you want please do But I want to close with an idea from verse 6, that we are called to enjoy our spiritual journey, not just to endure it. Is it difficult? You bet. Is it going to cost us a lot? You bet. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the spiritual journey that God has called us on. Verse 6, we are his people, his house, and we must hold fast to the trust and confidence that we have in Jesus. And then there's this weird phrase of boasting in our hope. How many of you regularly boast in your hope on a daily basis? Like maybe kind of like I'm not sure what that means. It's not an arrogance, right? In your own ability. It's not even an arrogance in in God. It's a confidence though that Jesus Christ is the beloved son over the house us. And each member of his house will receive the grace and favor that we need in order to face every demand in this life. That's our confidence. No matter what happens, no matter what we face, as we're living out our heavenly calling and pursuing Jesus, He's going to give us what we need every step of the way to continue on that journey. And we're going to boast about it. Won't God do it? Amen. Right? I mean, just... The language that we use, again, in the prayer that, we haven't talked about this, but the prayer that she talked about, like every word from our mouth, every action that we do has to be rooted in something, and our confidence has to be rooted in something. It can't be in us. It shouldn't be in anyone in this room. We boast about our confidence in who he is and what he's done on our behalf, and we understand that when we realize and consider who he is. And then he uses these experiences in our lives to equip us for his service and to bring him glory. That's the heavenly calling that we've been invited into. And so I just ask you this morning, are you ready to answer that call with confidence? I pray that you are. Now, it's not perfection. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for that O word obedience. Obedience does not equal perfection. There's only one that was perfect. But he does expect our obedience to the heavenly calling that we've been given to bring him glory and that comes through our confidence in who he is and that comes through accurately considering who Jesus is in order to hold fast our confession in him. You know, you get so much out of six short verses, huh? You're just like, what are you going to talk about? The house? Builder building the house? I mean, there's lots of things in there you could probably say. But that's what I felt like the Lord wanted me to say this morning. And I said what I said. And I'm done saying things. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we have in your word all that we need to consider, to know, and to rightly understand who you are and what you've accomplished on our behalf. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is that each one of us would do just that on a regular basis. Not only consider you as the, the apostle, the sent one, the high priest, the faithful one, the one who's worthy of glory, Lord, but the one who died in our place, the one who was obedient to the call on his life, to live a perfect life free from sin and to go to the cross and to take our punishment in our place where that moment of great exchange took place, that substitutionary atonement where you exchanged your sinless righteousness for our filthy rags and unrighteousness, that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the glory of God. He sees that transferred to us That took place on the cross, and there is nothing that we do to earn it. It's a free gift. You call us only to repent and believe. Repent, change our mind about who we are and our sinful nature, and believe in the truth of the gospel and all that you've accomplished in your life, death, and resurrection. God, would you just show us the ways this week? where we haven't considered you fully. There's something in our lives, Lord, that's keeping us from going a little bit deeper in our understanding of who you are. There's something, Lord, in even what we've been taught in our faith journey that doesn't line up with who you truly are. Would you help us to see with clarity, with discernment and wisdom, from your word, who you are? And God, help us in light of that to bring you glory every opportunity that we get. Help us to hold confidence and boast in our hope in you. We need your help, and we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.